0: Welcome, Trinity Bible Church, as well as friends and family who have come to uh, uh, witness in the, the celebration of baptisms. I just wanted to um, say that the baptism today is actually part of the public worship. And so when we kind of end this portion of the word, I will pray, but will not be giving the benediction. What we'll be doing is be giving, kind of think of it as a pause, as people go and get changed in order to be baptized. We'll go out and we want everyone to come and witness the baptism because it is a part of the public worship gathering. And then after the final baptism, there'll be a final prayer and a benediction, and, and then you can leave. But um, we would love everyone to stay and uh, participate by, by watching and being a part of the baptism as the congregation together. Uh, Another note is uh, we finished up the uh, two meetings, the lunches and the discussions with the men and the women. Uh, If you missed that and you wanted to get the audio of it, um, uh, men for men, women for women, like not the... So uh, uh, just send me an email... And uh, or, or reach out to me in some way, and I'd be happy to get that to you. And uh, just as a, just to remind me of that. And so, uh, and then and then now, as uh, as we enter in the time of the word, uh, if you are visiting today, uh, I will read the entirety of the word uh, that we will be covering today uh, out loud. After that that uh, reading, I give you the opportunity to pray uh, for the Holy Spirit to to illuminate your heart and mind. Uh, pray for. Um, a moving of your, uh, a proper moving of your affections through the truth of the word uh, to Godward uh, thinking. And if you are here and you are an unbeliever, if you have no idea what we're talking about, uh, just consider the words you hear today. Consider the things you've witnessed amongst the fellowship of the saints. And uh, we pray that God will move on your heart according to his plan. And today we are reading, although not covering it in entirety, we are reading from Matthew 16, 21 through 28. We'll be spending two weeks on these verses. Big surprise. <laughs> reading now from 16:21 through 28. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, say it, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as this assembly gathers to celebrate the resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ, we come this morning already in prayer. We've come in fellowship of the saints, a joyful fellowship of celebrating our shared union with Christ through the Spirit. Acknowledging your great works and mercy through lifting up voices and corporate praise as one voice celebrating your glory. Now, Lord, as your people come before your word, your holy and true word, which you have put forth with our understanding through the Spirit and through a full guide and of who you are, who we are, and your great plan of redemption. God, I pray now for the saints, for the elect, for the church, that the Spirit, which indwells each and every one of us, would be turning our hearts and minds' attention solely to your word. And that through your word we would be confronted confronted anew with our own idolatry, our own waywardness, our own almost constant need of self-worship. Lord and let us be confronted with these things by the Spirit and the Word, and would call us to repentance, of these dead works and pursuing Christ and becoming more Christ like. And let us be comforted by the same word, by the power of the gospel and the grace of God, which is overwhelming and immeasurable and constant forgiveness. Lord, we pray for those who are here who are in unbelief. We pray, God, that through your spirit and word, there would be a quickening of the heart, a drawing by the spirit, a regeneration and new life, so that they would understand the word and the truth of the gospel. And that they would have faith and believe and repent of dead works be transformed into a new creation in Christ. We pray all this morning, all of this time, all of the Lord's day would be to give you the glory you deserve. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Several weeks ago when we stopped with going through the gospel according to Matthew, we ended with this, this kind of monumental moment that that peter has when confessing that jesus was messiah jesus asked his disciples of who do they say that i am and the answers varied from john the baptist who they assumed was was brought back to life or perhaps elijah who was supposed to return the, the forerunner you know two forerunners of messiah And then he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him that he gained that knowledge from God, not from man. And we celebrate this moment. We celebrate the the fact that it's finally out there for his disciples to hear. And we're also rooting for Peter a little bit, because all we see of him pretty much is him kind of fumbling through things. Well, welcome to the old Peter. The very next instance of this book, this letter, is this sobering teaching. Now that they have been told, now that they hear, now that it's out there, Jesus isn't a prophet like Elijah or John the Baptist. He's not a a rabbi like any of the others at the time. He's the one that all of creation has been waiting for. If you were to look back to Genesis 3, I don't hear a lot of turning, but that's because you understood that what I was saying, if, then I was going to, and I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go back. That's, you did the right thing. After the fall, of the fall of the man and the woman, the sin in the garden... And this is what the Lord in 3.14 announces to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. The dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelion. This is the first giving of the good news of the Gospel. An example of this is that this was held fast to even by Eve herself, is that when Seth is born, she, she cries out that this is perhaps the one. And that's all of the Old Testament is this looking forward to the one. This one who will redeem, this one who will crush the head of the serpent undo the works of sin and the ruin on all of humanity and all of creation itself. And so the disciples are told, he's Messiah. And yet in the first instance of what he tells them, what is necessary for Messiah to do, you will see the people who should have known what he was supposed to do. Not just the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians, and all those who would be opponents of Christ. His very own disciples didn't understand it. And in that, there are many lessons for us. So it says in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now when we think of emotional highs and lows, oh, I got a new car. It's a car I've wanted for a real long time. And a lady on her phone sideswipes you in a parking lot. True story. You're like, Okay, now I'm a little low. We generally think of these in frivolous things. Your, uh, your team that you like, whether, whatever sport it might be, and you even make a schedule around watching their game. You've made sure all your work is done, you've made sure everything's taken care of, whatever you need to do, but you've got these couple hours that you've set aside, unless it's baseball, then you've got like half a day of boredom, <laughs> praying for death, and But other things that are like two hours long, you set it aside and you watch in horror. And the only thought you can think of is, that was two hours of my life wasted. Wasted. And there's that low. And it's really bad if they're winning and all of a sudden they fall apart and you're like, then you, then you begin to examine your life in general. What am I doing with my life? But imagine the high Of the disciples. Given the knowledge Peter is by God. This is Messiah. This is the one. From the line of David. Who is going to crush. The head of the serpent. No. That's not what he was thinking. You want to know what they were thinking? Here comes David. And he is going to kick the Romans out of the beautiful city, Jerusalem. He is going to slay them by the tens of thousands and make sure the pure and beautiful Jerusalem is kept clean of Gentile filth. And when it is purified in the blood of Israel's enemies, then he will sit on the throne like David did. And then any other nation that comes against us, he will slay them as well. That is who they believed Messiah was. They were reckoning with the idea that they were to be free of the bondage of Rome. And so, with that high, verse 21, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The way this is phrased in the the Greek here is that it's a necessity for these things to happen. Uh, This trip to Jerusalem, this march to his own death, had to happen. The disciples thought what had to happen, like most of Jewish society at the time, what had to happen was a repeat of what happened in the past under David. Casting off the physical enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and all these neighboring nations, and to be recognized and have sovereignty for a time over this physical realm. Jesus tells his disciples and shows them, I'm going to Jerusalem, not to sit on the throne. I'm going to Jerusalem to die as one cursed by God. Think you've had emotional highs and lows? Imagine that. This is who Messiah is. This is what he's come to do. All the sacrificial system was a shadow, was a, was a looking at a window through, through faded glass of what the true sacrifice was. Christ is marching to take their curse. To take their penalty. Because he was the only one who could. Now these are a group of men who have decided. I'm following this man. And then when he. We've, I've spent my time with him. I'm going to repeat what he's done. That's the second half of the portion. Right? That, that we read this morning. Where it talks about if anyone will follow me. He's just let them know. When I go to take my rightful place in Jerusalem, it will be on a tree, not on a throne. My throne is somewhere else. And where the disciples will be, will be somewhere else. But this reckoning with this idea, the necessity of his death on the cross and the, where he was going to Jerusalem and telling the disciples, these very people who have been my opponents the whole time, they're the ones who I must go and suffer many things for. We just went through all of Easter, right? And all of Easter, you're thinking about the humiliation of Christ, all the way up to the passion, all the way up to the humiliation, being spit on, beaten, whipped, mocked, nailed as a criminal between other criminals, and then taking the curse and the sin of his people. That's the king. It says. And Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him. Say it. Far be it from you Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's one of the strangest translated Greek phrases there are, the, the phrase, far be it from you, Lord, what he's saying is like, God have mercy on you. Uh, or or what, what's the, the modern kind of southern, if someone, if you're irritated with someone, huh? Wow, there was a lot of ladies who said that really quickly. <laughs> bless your heart. Peter takes Messiah aside and gives him a bless your heart moment. And it even says very clearly he's rebuking him for suggesting that the king is going to Jerusalem to not be worshipped. He's going there to be abused and murdered. So Peter takes him aside. and He tells him what I hope you see from the depth of the depth of what lies in the heart of most of us. In instances of great emotional distress, Peter allows his passion to lead him. And we see this as Peter is an example for out, right? You don't chop someone's ear off because you're thinking clearly through a situation. He acts out of his passion Acts out of his place as a disciple to his master. Goes to this one who has just told him that given the knowledge of God, I am Messiah. And now that Messiah has told him what he must do. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be mocked. He must be whipped. He must be humiliated and he must die. Because that's what's necessary for his people and God's plan and God's glory. And Peter rebukes Messiah in passion, in ignorance, in overconfidence. And Jesus gives him one of the most startling lines as a response. Get behind me, Satan. Now, the tragedy of this is that many of you, and maybe many of us, have used that jokingly. When someone gets in your way, someone's driving badly. That per, get behind me, Satan. It's used with frivolity. But the fact of the matter here is, imagine, again, I've, I've started this text by talking about, imagine the place that these disciples are in. And now imagine him, he's going to Jesus, whom he loves, to tell him, Certainly that's not why you're going to Jerusalem. Certainly you're not going to die and going to be beaten and, and all of these things and suffer. That's not, you're, you're Messiah. That can't be what you go to do. And Jesus, the God-man, tells this disciple who's put himself in front of him to get back behind him. And then Satan itself, the word itself means adversary. He's tempting jesus as satan tried to he's tempting him away from this fate that is before him as god man who lived sinless and yet was tempted in every way and yet never broke the law that was the condition of his sacrifice he had to be pure he had to be sinless but he could be tempted in every way when you're contemplating Tough situations for yourself where you're like, this is going to be one where I'm going to have to swallow a little bit of pride and that kind of thing. You imagine, can't imagine this. This is creator of the universe who has humiliated himself in the flesh and now is going to make a march into the kingdom, the one place in all of creation that should have recognized him. And it was the one place where they were most hostile toward him. And he's going there to pay the price for other people's sin. And we see it at the, the night before he's he's arrested. He's sweating blood. There's these aspects of the reality of the humanity of Christ that you have to come face to face with. And so when, when Peter goes, that's certainly not going to happen to you. He is, in fact, attempting to tempt Jesus away from this destined appointment. And so he tells Peter, by attempting to stop this or get in the way with it, he is acting as his adversary, not his disciple. It's not a joke. It's a serious contention. It's it's another moment here in the aspect of what's happening with Jesus instructing his disciples and instructing us. Mocking a verse like this makes it easy for when we play with sin in our own life. It makes it easy when we make mockeries of verses like this to even excuse our own sin in our life. we take away the seriousness of the accusation here by Christ, Is that anything that takes away from his glory, from his majesty, from his sacrifice, is adversarial. If you've been coming to Wednesday nights, and it's not many... I've been a great grumbly person about the, sh- the state of evangelicalism. And I shared a little bit with this on Good Friday, I think. But the state, the horrifying state of evangelicalism is hard to even articulate so much of Protestantism is beginning to lean to places where they reject the essentials of what make the Christian faith. Did you know that four churches in California for the last 20 years have been responsible for over 80% of the songs we sing in evangelical churches? And most of those songs have to do with about what God can do for you? and you sing them along on the radio probably all the time, unless you're not listening to the radio, and instead you have a CD player, and you're you're teaching yourself Greek, which was what Roy Ledgerwood always told me I needed to do more. Four churches. You want to know what those churches believe? Not in the virgin birth. Not in the substitutionary atonement. And if you look at what's gone on with their leaders, they don't really believe in husband of one wife, not being a lover of money. All of these things have repercussions for all of us. If you're taking in things and being led astray and being letting things go with ease in your life, and you're not acknowledging the majesty of Christ. It's adversarial. You hamstring yourself. That's a Sorry, that might be a strange phrase. If you've ever seen someone snap their hamstring, or have ever had it happen, or Achilles tendon, the tendon that runs the back of your leg, if it gets severed in some way, that leg doesn't work anymore. And so while you're running, all of a sudden you're hopping on one leg and you can't move forward at all. And so when you live a life of half devotion, when you live a life of saying, well, Jesus said these things and I like those things, but I kind of don't like those things, so I'm not going to listen to those things, you're hopping through your Christian life. The good thing for Peter was that he seemed to be someone who learned this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan's. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter didn't want his master someone he loved. He didn't want him to be humiliated. He didn't want him to die. But Jesus is telling him, even in what you think or imagine as these thoughts you have. If you don't believe that there has to be sacrifice. If you don't believe that I have to go and die in order to free you. You have not understood anything. And it must be Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over the city. Jerusalem, that which is the city on the hill. It was appointed for the purpose that God's people would show his glory in their lives by living according to the law. And that it would draw the nations to Israel because of their different life. And then that nation on a hill, centralized by temple and the worship at the temple, would be that which would hasten in a return to Eden. That was what Israel was supposed to do. They're unable to do it. And Jerusalem then now becomes a byword for sin and death. Luke in his gospel in chapter 11, I believe. Jesus will say, 13, I'm sorry. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And that's a phrase meant for to be sad. That's a phrase meant to be sobering. He's also being ironic, like, I I have to go die in Jerusalem because that's what Jerusalem does. It puts to death the prophets. John, in his book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, he'll use Jerusalem as synonymous with Egypt, And it's synonymous, excuse me, with Sodom. This was a place that had Torah, that had the patriarchs, that had the traditions, that had the word, had the law, it had everything. And if you cannot see the sobering, absolutely staggering nature of what sin does to humanity... It is nothing more than to say that Jesus, the reception of Messiah, where he was going and the time he was going and the manner he was going, according to and fulfilling prophecy at every step in every way, doing the works that could only come from God and the healing and the raising of the dead and the pointing to the signs and the wonders, prophesying, All of these things, but when he gets there, it is his death that awaits him. Because we hate the truth in our nature. We hate the light and we love the dark. Jesus died to free you from the bondage of sin to free Peter and the disciples and all who would call on his name from this time until a time when he returns and calls his people and gathers them for glory in his true kingdom, where you will see him on the real throne. But until such a time as now, the church is called to follow him follow Him and and through His Word and through the power of the Spirit to the greatest of our Spirit-given ability to live quiet and holy lives. Lives that reflect the glory of God, that attract the nations to the holy living. The world you live in now is not defined by holiness. What you see around you, what you have to operate in, maybe at your workplace and people with you work, people in your neighborhoods, it is foreign, foreign in our country to live holy. People mock it. People laugh at it. Do you see it? Jesus called people to righteous living and they mocked him for it. He called them to stop sinning and they cursed him for it. He went into the most difficult of situations to call out the sin of humanity and to repent, and they wanted to kill him for it. As a Christian man and woman, that is the cross you are called to. If there's anything that you can understand from this, is the time for playing like children is over. When Paul talks about when he used to think like a child when he was a child and act like a child, but then he had to give up childish ways because he was a man. I feel like so much of Christianity, so much of what you see and what you hear, is this constant pretending that we're still children. The author of Hebrews talks about moving past the milk phase of being an infant in Christ, and should long have moved on to solid food, but all you can receive is milk. It's time for the church to grasp hold of this reality. Our job is to follow not just in Christ and and celebrate the victory that we have and that our hope is assured, and then just live however we're pleased, It's that we are to grab hold fast to the salvation and the hope that is sure in his kingdom. And while we're now here as aliens until we go to that kingdom, we follow him and carry our own cross into the face of a godless world. To be witnesses to him for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time of the Lord's Day and for worship. God, I pray that you would grant us mercy, that through the Spirit, you would strengthen the hearts and minds of the faithful to live lives that reflect your glory, putting to death sin in our life, exercising the necessary aspects of what it means to be a Christian, defending the faith, sharing your faith, discipling others in the faith and teaching them about the faith. Through every aspect of our life, every obstacle, every trial would be answered through, through the word and through prayer and through fellowship of the saints. through the trustworthiness of the promises of the gospel, we know at the worst of times, our promised hope is assured that the same Christ who was lifted up on the tree, who was buried in the ground, who was raised to life, and then ascended back to his place of glory will one day return for his people. And we live in light of that hope. Strengthen your church, God, for the works of ministry. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.